You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 through 22 is the text. And, um, we are looking at this book through the theme of exiles. Uh, Peter uses this in the very first verse of his letter to the church in Turkey, a hostile, persecuted church. And he says to these people, you guys are elected exiles. You guys are not where you are by chance, but you're there because you're chosen. And everything about your life, the amount of money you have or don't have, and friends, and everything else has all been elected and selected for a specific purpose. And even though you're the minority, nobody's outnumbered with God. You can't see the angels of armies around your life. You can't see the plans that he has for you. You can't see all the things that he's doing. And so God loves to show off his big plans in small people like you and me as long as we're taking steps of faith. And so he is speaking to encourage, really, not just exiles in Turkey or Afghanistan, but exiles everywhere, because everybody needs to hear they're not home. And essentially following Jesus is following somebody to a real home, a real hope. And, um, and so that's what the theme is all about. And so uh, I, I had a friend, uh, he, he came to me with this, this test. He says, Oliver, you got to take this test. It's going to change your life. There's nine numbers. And uh, it's called the Enneagram. And it's going to break everything open, and you're going to have hours and hours of wonderful discussion and conversation with your friends about your self-actualization and identity and so forth. And so I took the test. I took the short one and the long one, the free one and the expensive one, and I'm a three. I'm a three on the Enneagram, a type three. And so apparently, uh, just not to psychoanalyze myself in front of all of, all of you that I know and love, um, there's uh, three, little, three little subsets within the nine. Uh, one is based in shame, I think, and one is based on fear, and the other one is based on, on, on uh, pride, I think, or something like that. And so I'm the shame guy. Okay, so I'll just bear open there for you. And so the three, the type three, allegedly, is trying to achieve things in order to escape that sense of shame, that sense of maybe I'm not good enough, maybe I'm not adequate enough. And so uh, the short way of saying that for the three is threes want to win. You know what I'm saying? You ever hear that song? I want to win, 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 no matter what. Apparently that's me. Uh, and, and I don't want to lose. And, uh, and so... Um, the way that the people talk about the Enneagram test is really like, we're not all just one number, we're all the different numbers. And we all have a little bit of different numbers in us at different points. And so maybe you're like me, you have a little bit of three in you that you woke up to win today. You didn't wake up to lose. Did you wake up and put your cute outfit on to lose? No. You came here to win and, and we want to be successful. We want to be wise. We want to do our best um, because uh, there's something about winning that makes it worth it. When you're part of the winning team, and you go 15 and zero, it's like, well, then it's worth it to do the push-ups. You know, like, I'll do the push-ups and show up to the team meeting if you can tell me we're going to win, but I didn't come out here to lose. I don't know about you, but I didn't come out here to sweat it out and get yelled at by that linebacker so I could go uh, 0 and 15. I didn't come out here to do that, right? So there's something about losing that is so demoralizing because it feels like the things that you do to get to the place of losing is all wasted. You know what I'm talking about? When you get to the end of that thing, and maybe it's something really significant like a marriage or a family or a ministry or a nonprofit or a job and you get to the end of it and you left your pound of flesh, you, you, you left your extra mile there and it didn't matter, you still lost. Have you ever been there before? There's something about the psychology of victory and defeat. And so, um, and so the scriptures, they mess with us because they redefine categories. They assume that we don't know the things that we think that we know about stuff. And the scriptures from Genesis beyond are, are, are annoying us. They're, they're working on us day by day because they're explaining that we don't see victory the same way as the Scripture sees victory. We don't see winning the same way as the Scripture see winning. We don't see losing the same way 
as the scriptures do. When we see, when we see winning, we think of this. We think of the Greek word nikaho, Nike. That's what we think of. We think of, we think of Michael Jordan from the free throw line extending and just dunking and the Gatorade sign comes out and everybody goes wild. This is what we think about. We think of the branding of triumph. We think of Olympians. We think of gold medals. We think of success. This is what we think about when we have an association uh, idea about what it is that we mean by the word victory. But when the scripture thinks of victory, it only thinks of this. This is scripture's brand of victory. If you talk to any of the biblical authors, if you talk to Paul or Peter, you talk to Jesus, when you talk to the disciples, they can't associate, they cannot disassociate the word victory from that. That is their image. That is their brand of victory. It is the cross, not the swoosh. And, and so, and so when, when, we are, when, we are, um, when we were born, you know, straight out of the womb, it's like, it's from the beginning, like, if you touch your hand on a stove and it's hot, um, we are, in a good way, creatures that know that when something is painful, something might be wrong. Like, if something is hot and you touch your hand on the stove, you should remove it. It's your body telling you that something might be wrong. But Jesus and the scriptures are continually trying to disciple us to help us apprentice under him and rethink the way that we think about our words and our categories. And he's trying to teach us that if you're in pain, maybe the best thing is not to stop but to keep going because something might not be wrong, it might be right. And maybe woe to you, you know, if everybody only has nice things to say to you and woe to you if everything in life is peachy keen and woe to you if your existence revolves around comfort and coziness you might not be on the right path. Maybe when there's pain, there's something right. There's not something wrong, is what maybe a biblical writer would say. And so, and so Peter comes to us in 1 Peter 3, the passage that we'll read today, and he does not have a short task with us. He has a lot of work to do because if there's one thing that a human being does not want to let go of, it's their sense of defense from pain. It's the final idol, I think, that we all have in our lives. I mean, we're willing to give up good things, but to suffer something bad, that's a completely different thing for a human being. And so in a short passage, he has, to, he has to undo us a little bit and deconstruct our view of pain and suffering and victory to understand it from a biblical worldview. And so the way that he does this is he has to guide us to see the unseen. The way that Peter is going to equip us this morning in the scripture in 1 Peter 3 is to help us see what we don't see about what we see. Because... The real problem of pain is not just the sting of it, but the fear of it. It's the, it's the feeling of purposeless pain that really gets us. It's the fear that the pain won't stop, that it doesn't matter, and that I'm all alone in the pain. That's really why pain is relative. I mean, your pain is very hard to compare to my pain, and I can't compare it because it's all psychological. It's the fear of pain. And so what he's needing to do with us this morning is to help us see what we can't see, is to see the unseen realm, to see what we don't see to see the things that really move and, and live around us that actually change and ebbs and flows the course of history. The angels, the demons, the powers, the principalities, the not flesh and bloodness of our enemies. He's going to talk to us about that, and that is the canvas by which he's going to speak to us about the issue of pain. And so uh, if you join me in, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, uh, this is how he says it. Um, he's been talking about submission, and he's talking about serving, and he's talking about the power of doing good towards evil in the ways that it preaches the gospel. And so that is his equipping 
call for all exiles in, in foreign lands is to do good towards evil. And this is what he's going to say is that, well, doing good towards evil sometimes leads to uh, success in the preaching of the gospel, and sometimes it leads to pain. And so he says it this way. He says, if it's, uh, it is better, says Peter, to the church and to you and to me, if it is God's will, uh, not just because we're gluttons for punishment, but as we follow in the path of Jesus, he says, it might not be a bad thing to suffer. It actually might be a good thing if you're doing good for evil. Everybody can exchange evil for evil, and everybody can exchange good for good, but only Jesus exchanged good for evil, and so the gospel is preached in a loud way. And so he's recalibrating this in us, and he's saying, it might be a good thing. He says, remember Christ. Let's think about Let's think about the greatest victory. He says, Christ suffered one time. Do you remember that? He says he suffered for sins. He was a sinless man that suffered for sins. And this sinless man exchanged his righteousness for our unrighteousness. He was not just a sufferer. He was a sinless sufferer. He was doing good towards evil and receiving evil for it. And he still persevered in that suffering. And so if this is the disciple that we, or excuse me, this is the rabbi that we disciple under, then this is the path that we can expect that Jesus suffered sinlessly and he gave righteousness for unrighteousness and it brought us to God. It was the greatest victory song and champion, uh, exclamation point, in all of human history. His suffering brought the victory of his children to return to him. And so it says, he was put to death in the body, but he was made alive in the spirit. And he says, after being made alive, he didn't just, uh, he didn't just sit contentedly in heaven. He actually had a little victory campaign. He had a little parade, if you will. After being made alive, he went ahead and went down to the imprisoned spirits. He went down to the demons, decided to have a little preaching campaign. And he preached to the imprisoned spirits. This word is not the kind of preach that invites people down to the altar to have salvation come to you. This is the kind of preaching that has a proclamation to it of uh, the thing that I'm preaching about is true regardless of what you're going to do about it or not. It's true regardless of you. And so he preaches to these imprisoned spirits, yours and my enemies, the real enemies, the not flesh and blood enemies, and to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it only a few people were saved. So um, this passage was written to an audience um, that outside of the Jewish faith and the Christian faith, secularly, the most famous, popular, biblical character of this day was Noah. That's why he uses uh, the character of Noah in 1 Peter and in 2 Peter, and Jude also uses this reference here, because Noah was uh, such a famous character that he even appeared on the back of some of the Roman coins, like Caesar on the front, Noah on the back. So Noah was a very easy cultural context to hook into. And what he's kind of winking and nodding towards is another character that was living just before the days of Noah called Enoch. Enoch was in Genesis 6. It's said in the scriptures in Genesis 6 that Enoch walked with God and then was no more. In other words, Enoch didn't die. He went straight to heaven and, and didn't experience death. And so there is a folklore and a legend of Enoch of what happened after Enoch went from this place. And for some of the Jews and even some uh, Jew then and some Jews today, part of the canon is an actual book that you can go and get on Google called The Book of Enoch. 
And in many places, this is considered part of the canon. And Enoch, the book of Enoch, explains where Enoch went. Enoch went uh, to heaven, and um, he went directly into uh, the courtroom of God. But on his way, he encountered some imprisoned spirits. These were the Nephilim, the mighty men of old, the beginning, you know, basically fallen angels, demons that uh, slept with the, the daughters of man and impregnated them with these kind of demons, basically. And so these, these demons are, are kept up and they're imprisoned and they ask Enoch, they beg of him, when you go back and to return to the Lord, request uh, a reversal of our sentence. Request that, they would say, that the Lord would have mercy and set us free. And the story of Enoch was that when he came to the Lord, the Lord told him to go back to the imprisoned spirits and tell them that their sentence still stood. So what the author's doing here, what Noah's doing here, is he's presenting Christ as a second Enoch. He's a second Adam, and he's a second Enoch. And Enoch is therefore a shadow of Christ. And Christ preached Enoch's sermon, but better than him. Because Christ did die, but Christ was raised, and so he didn't just escape death, he defeated it. And so, so Christ, at the very moment of his, of his death, had sabotaged the conspiracy of evil and was actually instrumenting the greatest victory of all time at the moment that we all saw defeat. And he was not content just to sit in heaven and enjoy um, his, uh, his resurrection. He took it upon himself between the cross and the grave to go to his enemies and preach a sermon. And this is essentially what the sermon said. You thought that death was a part of life. And so when you took my life as a ransom for their life, you thought that you got me and them. But you made a fatal flaw because death is not a part of life. Death is a part of sin, and I'm sinless. And so now, because I have died and because I've broken the power of death and sin in the resurrection in the empty tomb, then death has no hold and sin has no hold, and you should take your hands off my kids. This is what he's saying. Between the tomb and the grave, Christ was not passive, and he was not biding his time. He was active, and he went to the imprisoned uh, 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 demons and went to the imprisoned spirits and spoke a word to them. He proclaimed to them in a sermon that did not have an invitation to it, but a proclamation. You're done here. These ones are mine, and you can take your hands off of my kids. So then Peter takes us back up. Remember, he's equipping us now to think different about suffering and victory and everything in between and he talks to us about Noah. Did you catch that? He says, after being made alive, he went and proclaimed to the imprisoned students, uh, uh, spirits to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. He says, in it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes a baptism that now saves you also. He goes back and he talks about Noah. And you notice he talks about how long it took Noah to build that ark. Do you remember that? Noah, Noah was building a boat in a time period when there wasn't any rain. Do you remember this whole thing? God's got Noah because he's a man of righteousness. He obeys God. His faith is accredited as righteousness like Abraham. And Noah just hears God and he just starts building the boat and doesn't see any rain for 120 years. Just on faith. Do you know how dumb you look when you're building a boat for 120 years when there's no rain? Do you, know how, do you know how defeated you look on year 119 and there's still, you know how much, do you know how much a loser you look like when you're doing that? How many of you guys have ever gone on an hour and a half road trip with your kids 
for 120 minutes to Asheville. Do you know how many times they asked to go to Chick-fil-A because they didn't like their mom's tuna fish sandwiches that she made? Do you know how many times she's saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Noah is building a boat for rain unseen because God told him to do it. And for 120 years, does nothing but save his own family and lives a life the way that Christ died, looking like a loser. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that maybe the things that you're doing in your life make you look like a loser, but God is calling you a winner? Have you ever stopped to think about the concept, the possibility at the very same places that you and your friends think that you're losing, you are actually winning? Did you know that that when you preach and share and prophesy to your neighbor and they reject you, God does not call you a loser but calls you a victor, even when you are rejected? Did you know that when you set up your classroom for the 14th year and that principal still doesn't care what you're doing and that teacher and that parent is still giving you trouble and you in all intents and purposes for the amount of money that you make and, and the amount of debt that you have because of the college education that you have, you have, you have an understanding that you might not be looking at the scoreboard the same way that God looks at that scoreboard? He is saying that his definition of victory is a dead rabbi with a crown of thorns getting spat at, and his definition of life is someone mocked and ridiculed for 120 years so he could save eight people from a rain that, didn't, that nobody had ever seen before. Do you understand that he sees victory different than our victory? And he wants us to get into the unseen so that we can really look at the scoreboard, that we can really understand what's at stake and what's happening. Because if we're following the model of Noah and following the model of Jesus, there is no such thing as a pain-free discipleship path. There is no such thing as a disciple that is inebriated from pain. That the path of Jesus includes and embraces and even rejoices in suffering, because catch this, suffering is the access to his victory, and suffering preaches to our enemies. Did you know that your pain preaches? Did you know that your pain preaches more than your pleasure does? I was joking with Tyrell. He came in here with that nebulizer, looked like that caterpillar from Alice in Wonderland with smoke coming out of it. He's coughing a lung up here, and decided to lead worship this morning. Tyrell's been in a lot of different churches and has just decided to use this season. I liked what he shared at the prayer meeting earlier. He's like, you know, you get injured when you don't stretch before you, you know, play the game, and the Lord stretches our faith so that we don't get hurt, you know? And so he's just deciding, like in the season, he's, he's, he's not sure where he's going or what he's doing or what he's about, but he's deciding to show up, and he's not allowing pain to be his rabbi. He's, made, he's, he, he's, he's He's putting in, in this decision, he's putting this, this faith decision to say, even when I don't see the rain, I'm going to be a builder. I'm going, to, I'm going to not avoid and avert pain, but I'm going to endure and embrace so that I can um, seek the joy that's set before me. And I will tell you, as I'm sure that many of you guys would testify to, stuff like that preaches. Stuff like that preaches. It preaches to me, it preaches to others, and it preaches to the people that we don't see. It preaches to the enemies that we don't see. That pain has no hold on me, and neither do you. And pain is often, and this is, I think, what is ultimately happening in the, 
in the cage match of pain, right, is that pain is ultimately the final idol. Many people will give up their dream easily. Many people will give up what it means to be a purpose-filled person. Many people will give up on, you know, great for good. But this is really where the crucible comes in, doesn't it? Like when I'm asked to sacrifice my comfort, when it really does come about my bodily and emotional well-being, that's when I tend to tap out. And so this is the last point. It's not that God cares about pain more or less than anything else, but he understands that pain is typically the final idol. And if death, if pain has no hold on us, then evil has no hold on us. As Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4 later on, that one who has suffered is done with sin. Because the one that is not held hostage by pain cannot be held hostage by sin and cannot be held hostage by anything else and continually preaches an obstinate and, boast, and, and boisterous sermon to our enemies and to our friends, death has no hold and death has no sting in our life. And so that, I think, is ultimately what is going on in, the, in, this, in this passage. So he concludes it. He shows us the seen and the unseen, victory and defeat. He talks about Noah while the ark is being built. In it, only a few, eight people in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes, he talks about, baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It says, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. I got baptized in 2011, just right after 9-11. I was 18 years old, and uh, we had part of a megachurch. It's probably 300 people showed up to this lake, and I still remember just the sweetest feeling. I was pretty much by myself. My uh, family that I grew up with uh, were non-believers, and so it was a big moment for me to be baptized. And, um, and much like a wedding, you have no idea what you're signing up for when you get baptized. Your friends were getting baptized. This is the time to do it. There's a Jeremy Camp song being played for crying out loud, you know? And so you make that decision, and the beauty of that decision, like baptism, like marriage, is that the decision grows and matures, and its value, you don't know what you were giving up, and you don't know what you were gaining. You were only going by faith, and you can always be thankful in the rearview mirror of the decision that you made back then, that maybe if you counted the cost, you wouldn't have made it. So you get to where you are. And so he's going back to this baptism. Have you been baptized before? It's an outward symbol of an inward transition. It's not the actual power to save. It's the resurrection and the faith in that resurrection that allows us to be saved, but it's the outward demonstration. It is the proclamation. It's the sermon. So he's talking about sermons. And what he's saying about baptism is that we don't see all that there is to see. We see water in a tub, and hopefully it's not too cold or not too hot or whatever. And we hear all the music, but we don't see all there is to see. We don't see the eternity that's being changed. We don't see the destiny that's being forged in that moment. We were out there just the other week uh, with Andrew and Mary Eleanor, I think like nine and 13 years old. Sweet kids, the Gouch kids. Hope they get to know them. And Mary Eleanor said something like, I just feel like the love of the Lord has been drawn me towards his heart. She's like 13 years old. Why do you want to be baptized today? I just sense that when I'm with God, I know that he's near. And so I want to, I want to tell my friends, little Andrew, who's nine years old, he's knocking off kids' heads in the upward football realm. And he's like, I just want to tell my friends about Jesus. This is what he said. And so we went out there and and the water was pretty good, and we got in there, and we baptized, and we celebrated, and all the family came out, and they probably went to Denny's afterwards and had a great time. It's a day to remember and a day to look back on, and it grows in its value and maturity. But what Peter says is what we probably didn't know or maybe didn't think to notice is that we were not the only audience to that baptism, that we had 
right out there, whether we were willing to admit it or not or understand it or not, a surrounding cloud of witnesses. We had an angel army triumphing over what real victory is. You think you heard the Super Bowl before? You think you've seen a a half-court shot get made before? You think you've seen an underdog come up for victory? You've not seen victory until you've seen what happens around a baptism pool. You've not seen the history that's been changed, the, the destiny that's been then altered. We don't see that. We don't see that. And so all we see is a tub and somebody's black, you know, water shirt and the towel and everything. We don't see. And the other thing that we don't see is we don't see the surrounding enemies that Jesus is preaching to. Do you know that Jesus is preaching to enemies in your pain? And he's preaching to enemies in baptism and he's telling each of those enemies, this one does not belong to you. Take your hands off this kid. This one is mine. Did you know that in many countries today that when you get baptized, they literally hold a funeral for you and your family? Wherever it is that you come from, if you're part of a Muslim faith or some other type of a faith, they hold a funeral for you because a baptism is not just a celebration of potluck. It is a death. It is a real death to something old to come alive to a brand new life. And I don't know if we necessarily recognize that all the time. But isn't that what he's saying is that it is not only our resurrection, but in our death and in our suffering that we preach to our neighbors and our enemies the loudest. Did you know that your pain can preach? Did you know that your pain is talking about the resurrection all the time and it's telling yourself and pain is the final idol? Peter is saying that it, if, if you have suffered, then the body that has suffered is feeling the feeling of sin leaving it. It's feeling the power, right, and the principality of the, the power of death holding us, leaving the body. This is what suffering is as we are following Jesus. And so I think, not the least of these things, that if Peter was here to reread his letter and talk to us in 2021, I think that the conclusion that he would make to us in a room like us and ours and in a culture like ours is he would say something like this. He'd say, be careful about self-care. He would, he would, he would, potentially talk to us about how there's 17 yoga studios and Ocha bars and, you know, whatever color tablet we want. He would talk to us a little bit about what we mean when we really say rest or something like that, right? Because we grew up in a, in a society that witnessed the emptiness of the American dream, because before the self-care movement was the self-help movement, right? And so it was like the 16 steps to the better marriage and the better church, and you just do the 16 steps, and you sacrifice, you put your blood on the table there, and you go get the victory. But the question is, is whose victory were you getting? His or ours? Whose kingdom were you building? His or ours? And so there's a, there's a skepticism in this generation looking back on previous generations about what sacrifice is about in the first place, because sacrificing for yourself is not the same thing as suffering in Christ. And so there's a disillusionment in that, but let's just point out the obvious here that the problem with both self-sacrifice and self-care is they both have self at the center. Neither of those have Christ at the center and therefore cannot offer us victory. And so for all the self-protection and self-promotion and self-sacrifice, none of these things can reproduce the power of the cross in us. Self-care and self-help are not going to give us victory and we will, we will uh, die thinking we've won and actually have lost. And so, and so this, is, this is the question that I, that I have for us as we, you know, would consider. America spends, you know, 550 or $600 billion on pain relief, which is more than medical treatment of almost any other category that you'd go to the doctor for. 
And I just want to ask you this question. I know what avoiding pain can get us because we've been there before, but what is avoiding pain costing us is the question I'd want to ask. Because it costs us something. Like, if I am... uh, if I am fostering a culture in my relationships that does not embrace a sense of suffering for the gospel, there's a cost to that. If I am averse and avoidant of the pain of challenging somebody in Christ to speak the truth in love, there is a preservation that is entailed to that, but there's also a cost. If, if, if the, the general trajectory of my calendar is to stay as uncommitted as I possibly can so that I can be as comfortable as I possibly can. I can get my comfort, but I also cost me something too. I lose something too. There is always an opportunity cost. And so the question becomes, I know what, I know what pain avoidance can get me, but what is it costing me? And do we know anybody that has ever made disciples of disciples? Do we know any, anybody who has ever uh, followed in the course of obedience of the word of God over their life, do we know anybody who has really walked into their own identity or grown at all, who's not a 50-year-old, right, that's still stuck in being 20 years old in some ways? Have we known anybody that has been obedient to Christ without some pain? Calculate that cost and ask yourself, is it worth it? Because Peter is saying that everything changes, everything changes at the cross, and that our victory is not in self-help or self-care, but in the victory of the cross and the death and the death like his that we raise in a life like his. This is what he's saying, Romans 6. And so the second question becomes, what could change? If you would simply see, ask the Spirit to help you see what you don't see, to help you see the battle behind the battle, to help you see the fight behind the fight. Because there's probably more victory than you think. There's probably more hope than you think. There's probably more angel armies surrounding you. You think the choices that you're making today probably matter more than you think. And so the reason why the pain is so painful is because the pain has become purposeless if you can't see the victory in Christ. You are nothing but victorious in Christ. He has gone all the way back to the original Nephilim, all the way to the angel, you know, the enemies that you face today, and he's saying from the alpha to the omega, I've seen nothing but victory. I've seen no defeat over any of your enemies. And so when you preach and when you worship and when you embrace suffering on my behalf, you sing a song that you can't sing without pain. And you preach a sermon they can't be preached if you didn't have to suffer into it. And so I close with, uh, with a, a character, just one of the many, you know, of the, of the testimonies of faith, you know, that surround us, the cloud of witnesses. Um, not the least of these is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a quote that uh, comes out of, I think, the end of his autobiography. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a, a pastor in uh, Nazi Germany and used his final days in the internment camps and in the prison to preach to the prisoners and to the guards and he found great favor. It was almost, he was irresistibly um, magnetic when it comes to people smelled the aroma of Jesus around him. And even in that place of suffering and even that place of even antagonism between the enemy guards, the SS guards and him, there was an openness for victory even in the middle of a prison in the middle of the Third Reich. And he used the last days of his life preaching the gospel. The way that even Joseph, right, was in the courts of Pharaoh or Daniel in the courts of Babylon, the minority is not the minority if they're with God. And the power schemes were not the way that we would have eyed it up if we looked from the bird's eye view, but deep down and into the unseen realm, he was more victorious than Hitler ever was. And this is what they said of him. Uh, The SS doctor, this is literally his enemy. And, uh, 
and, and the spectator's perspective of what was going on in that prison cell, the SS doctor says, uh, witnessed the Bonhoeffer's death and later recalled the man, speaking of Bonhoeffer, was so devout and brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. He says, I've hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. There's a sermon that only pain can preach. There's a sermon that only suffering can preach. And God is not wasting your suffering and he is not defeated in any of your suffering or his. And he might say to you, don't waste it. Do not waste your suffering. Bonhoeffer sent one final message to George Bell in England. This is the end, but for me, it's the beginning of life. First Peter is saying there is not two baptisms. There is one. There is not two sufferings. There's one. And there's not two victories. There's one. That is our suffering. That is our victory. There is no path in Christ that doesn't lead us there. And so ultimately, within the chambers of the temple of the human heart, this is the blessing that rises up. This is our nature. This is what we were baptized into, not into a potluck or even just into a fellowship in a church, but into the victory of Christ. This is what baptism is. It's a spiritual warfare that tells his enemies to get his hands off his kids. And so it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, this is what, what, what suffering would be made perfect, what victory would be made perfect in the heart of believer. This is what the Holy Spirit is endowed to do in the heart's in the minds of you and I, it says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, it says, the, the mortal with immortality, then victory is truly established. It says, then the saying that is written will come true in you and me. The promise over you at your baptism is becoming true in you, in your suffering. The baptism is finding its fruition today, even now, in you, to say this, death, you have no victory. You thought that you were a part of life, but only sin was a part of death, and death has been put to death by the cross and the tomb, and so death has no victory in me. Like Jesus, like Bonhoeffer, like Noah, this is our nature. There's only one baptism. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to close as the band comes forward to, to pray. Um, I thought we might meditate on this final verse uh, as we respond, but the apostles, Peter, um, namely one of them, and Paul and some of the others in Acts chapter 5, well, it would have been before Paul, so not including him yet, but verse 41, uh, chapter 5, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing in their suffering because, it says, they had been counted worthy of the suffering of disgrace for the name. In a couple of weeks, we'll get into a passage in Peter where the first mention of the word Christian is used. And Christian was used as the derogatory term. But Peter and the apostles were able to see into the unseen in such a profound way that even their insults, their criticisms were actually compliments. That they were, they were blessed, they were rejoicing at the idea of being counted associated with that baptism. They found themselves celebrating, not mourning, the defeat that leads to victory. And so they were able to say, not just with um, dissonance and, and with, um, with uh, con contortion, but from the inside out, from the inner depths of their being, they were able to rejoice because they counted themselves worthy of the suffering of disgrace for his name. Have you counted the cost of your comfort? And um, what would the cost of pain avoidance be? Um, and what would be the great victory that we would be able to see now, not later, to see uh, the victory of Christ in um, the sufferings of Christ? 
And so let's just pray. I want, I want to just pray into this uh, specific area because we are all experiencing just the pain of the fallen world, but also persecution for righteousness, not for the American dream, but for the kingdom of God. And I want to call us to that and, and to come anew and come afresh to count the cost to know there's no defeat in him. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.